Let me invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word to our New Testament text this morning. You can find it on page 835 if you're using the Pew Bible in the rack in front of you. Our passage today is uh, the resurrection account in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We're picking up the end of uh, chapter 27 and reading through the first 10 verses of chapter 28. Uh, Matthew, as with the other three gospel authors, gives us a unique account uh, of these major events uh, in redemptive history, in the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As with all of them, we uh, aim to not merely make theological application uh, as we look and rehearse uh, these wonderful and familiar themes for us as Christians, But particularly, we preach through books of the Bible, praying that God, by the work of His Word and Spirit, uh, would reveal things particularly to us, and that God has a particular message for us today uh, in the topic of the resurrection, particularly through uh, the lens of Matthew's Gospel. So I pray that you will uh, attend to these words, not as if you've never heard them before, we can't do that, but you would attend to them uh, freshly expecting your God to speak to you through one of the most familiar accounts uh, in all of Scripture. So we will read with that expectation. We will pray for God's help. We will depend upon His Spirit uh, to give us uh, understanding and application from His Word. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse uh, 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisee gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see 
me. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, we pray today that you would give to every one of us eyes of faith. We pray that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that believe this simple and yet glorious truth that your Son and our Lord has risen from the dead. Lord, we pray particularly that you would soften hard hearts today. We pray for those who have come who are apathetic, who care not, who are ignoring all of the sermon, that you would for a moment give them sight to see the empty tomb, ears to hear the greeting of Jesus, and hearts to believe that he really is risen from the dead. And maybe this day, by the work of your Spirit, we would have folks hear and believe for the first time in this very hour. Lord, show every one of us the truth and the glory of the resurrected Savior, that we might believe and ourselves be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember one of the games that you maybe played as a child called Telephone, the telephone game? You teachers remember maybe doing this in your classes with your students. It's the game where one student comes up with a word or a phrase and they whisper it into the ear of the one next to them and then that person whispers it into the ear of the one next to them and they go down the line or they go all the way around the circle until you get to the, the last student and they say out loud what the word or the phrase is and it's always nowhere near what it started with, right? And everybody starts laughing and some people get mad that they messed up the phrase along the way. And then you all kind of play this game and you think, well, where did it? You, where did, you messed it up. You told me this. No, I heard that. And you said this word. And I heard that word. And you can kind of figure out where did it go wrong around the, the telephone game circle that so corrupted the original message, right? Well, the critics of Christianity would have us believe that the Christianity we have today has been somehow corrupted through a historical game of telephone. And it's somewhere along the way, or multiple places along the way, the message has been lost, or it's been corrupted. And sure, we gather today, and we sing our hymns, and we read our Bible, and we pray our prayers, but somehow we are woefully disconnected with those first words down the line of the historic telephone game. And sad for us, we can't even get back there. Somehow what happened then has been corrupted over the years, and so we claim Christianity, but we really don't know what we're talking about. The problem with that criticism of Christianity is verses like the ones we just read. Bible passages like the ones we just read. You see, you and I are not dependent upon a man-centered game of telephone to go down 2,000 years to tell us the message of Christianity. We have it right here. Matthew puts it right here for us in our word, in his words on the pages of Scripture. We can go back and compare the message that we have heard passed on from age to age and generation to generation, and we can read it right here and say, well, is that what the Bible says or is that what it doesn't say? In fact, God has so uh, ordered history 
So that far from Christianity being off track by a corrupted message on a corrupted telephone game, in fact, it's God's very means of one telling another and another telling another and the gospel spreading from Galilee out to the very ends of the earth. This message, this word, that he is risen. And we can go back and we can go back time and time again and it's right here for us on the pages of Scripture. It is God's means by spreading his gospel that we would see and know and we would go and we would tell others about it. Far from being a corrupted telephone game, it is the perfected telephone game where we pass along the very promises, the very assurances, the very facts of the gospel message. Our text today is all about the resurrection of Jesus. It is the very resurrection of Jesus. But it's not just about the fact of his resurrection. It is that his resurrection means something for you and me. And particularly in this passage, it means that we bear witness to his resurrection. We tell others about his resurrection. We have heard and we go and tell others. The message that Matthew has for us in the facts of the resurrection is this. The risen Jesus calls his disciples to bear witness to his resurrection. I know I'm repeating that word, beginning and end, risen and resurrection. The risen Jesus calls his disciples, the women here, the men of the Great Commission we're going to see in a couple weeks, you and me today, he calls his disciples to bear witness to the resurrection. Of primary importance in the verses that Matthew writes, that every gospel author writes, are the facts. They get the facts straight. They get the facts right. But it, just like with the crucifixion, where Matthew really doesn't tell us all that much about the crucifixion itself, he tells us more about the people around the crucifixion, the witnesses and the critics, and how they react to it. So too, now that we come to the resurrection, Matthew, amongst all the other gospel authors, gets as close as possible to telling us what actually happened, but he wasn't there, so he can't tell us either. What he does tell us are the is the aftermath and the reactions of everybody around the resurrection. So this morning, we're going to get the facts right, because they're clear on the pages of Scripture, and then we're going to see what do the responses of the disciples teach us about our own response to the resurrection of Jesus. There are two stories that you can believe today. There are two accounts of the facts before us that you can subscribe to. The final verses of chapter 27 give us one narrative of the facts. And that narrative is that Jesus is an imposter and he is committing a fraud. And you and I are just the latest people to fall for the fraud. That we are in a generation of thousands of people and thousands of years that have fallen for this fraud. Or, you can see with eyes of faith the facts of the resurrection, and that there's no fraud. In fact, the fraud is refusing to believe the truth before our very eyes. And if we see what God would have us see in these verses, it changes our very lives. The risen Jesus calls his disciples to bear witness to the resurrection. There's two steps here. Two steps that Jesus instructs his followers. Step one is to come and see. Step two is to go and tell. 
Uh, if, you, if that's too hard for you to write down, it's the title of the sermon. So you can go copy that. I made it as simple as I could. Come and see, step one. Go and tell, step two. Come and see. Twice, these women who are following Jesus are invited to come and see something. First, they're invited by the angel. Secondly, they're invited by Jesus himself. What they're invited to see are the facts, the truth of the matter that then changes their lives. First, in verses 5 to 6, they're invited by the angel. I'm I'm jumping to the meat of the matter. Uh, The context here is, of course, on the Sabbath day. So Jesus died on Friday. Uh, The Saturday is referred to at the end of chapter 27, the next day, the day of preparation. And then chapter 28 picks up with dawn on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is why we have church on Sunday. It's resurrection day. We celebrate the resurrection by gathering together Sunday by Sunday. So the women, these two women, Mary Magdalene uh, and Mary, verse 1, they come to see the tomb. Uh, They have been around after everybody else has fled. Remember, we don't really see these ladies for multiple chapters. And then after the death of Jesus, they appear. And there's multiple of them at the, uh, in verse, uh, what is that, verse 56. Uh, there are a, a couple, verses 51, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who have witnessed the death of Jesus, who now witness the burial of Jesus. And those same two women now come to the tomb in chapter 1, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 8, to see Jesus. The same people, these same witnesses, death, burial, and now resurrection. Uh, We read in other authors, they come to the tomb particularly uh, to prepare uh, Jesus properly according to their traditions uh, for his his burial. Kind of happened pretty pretty quick there, right, Uh, on that Friday afternoon. What they come and see, though, is not what they were expecting. Uh, They come and, verse 2, there is a great earthquake. The second great earthquake that happens in the span of three days, an earthquake when Jesus dies, it opens up the other tombs in Jerusalem, and now an earthquake when he is resurrected from the dead that opens up his own tomb. Uh, The earthquake, the means by which God's messenger, God's angel, uh, rolls back the stone. At the end of verse 2, he sat on the stone that's now been rolled away. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Now, an angel is simply a messenger. And the messenger dresses for the occasion... And he dresses to represent the one who has sent him. So this is what the angel, this is what the the mere messenger looks like. Imagine what the one who sent him looks like, right? The lightning, the clothing white as snow represents the holiness and the righteousness of the sender of God himself. So terrifying, we read in verse 4, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Of course they're trembling. You would have been trembling. But I love Matthew's description, like dead men. Who's supposed to be dead right now? Jesus. <laughs> He's not. Who's supposed to be alive? These guards. But they're described as dead. They're the only dead ones there. The guards terrified at the appearance of the angel. Now, here's where the angel begins speaking to the women and inviting them to come and see, and he invites them to see the, the number one, sort of the first, and we're going to see three great evidences for the resurrection, and that is the empty tomb. The tomb is empty, and they are invited to come and to see that the tomb is empty. 
Now, it can't be denied that this tomb is empty. Nobody disagrees with that. It is undisputed that there is an empty tomb. What is questioned is how the tomb became empty. To understand how the tomb became empty, we cannot use our own intellect and reason. We need someone to tell us, and we need an angel to tell us. There's two times in Matthew's gospel where something so miraculous and supernatural happens that we need an angelic messenger to help our finite minds make sense of it, right? It's the incarnation of Jesus in chapter 1, and now it's the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 28, where God sends his angelic messengers to tell us how to make sense of what we're seeing and experiencing right, in front of our very eyes. The angelic expression, the angelic message, the explanation here in verse 6, he's not here, everybody agrees with that. Why is he not here? The answer, he is risen. Now that's probably not the answer that you and I would logically come to, right? If we went and saw an empty tomb of somebody that we had seen buried two days ago, our initial thought would have been, well, I guess they just rose from the dead, right? I mean, it's not like we're dealing with a bunch of stupid people that think people just rise from the dead, right? Just, just two days after they die, all right? This is not a sort of logical conclusion. We begin with the angelic message that he has risen, and from that we can begin to examine the evidence to see, do we actually agree, do we assent to the reason why the tomb is empty? Now, maybe you think there's other reasons the tomb is empty. There's a lot of reasons people give for why this tomb could be empty. We, did, we heard one last week, and that reason is, it's the wrong tomb. Somehow, they went to the wrong tomb. Now, these are the women who saw him die, the same women who saw where he was buried, were the same women who went to the right tomb to see the body. They didn't go to the wrong tomb to find a different body. They went to see this body. It's the tomb we read in the end of chapter 27, that the Jewish leaders wanted to make sure was made secure so that nobody could break into it. So the wrong tomb theory assumes that not only the women who saw where he was buried went to the wrong tomb, but also the very soldiers who were sent to make sure he didn't break out of that tomb, or nobody took him out of that tomb, that they also went to the wrong tomb. And if it's really the wrong tomb, you know how you could have ended Christianity at the beginning? Just go to the right tomb. <laughs> right? Right? Plenty of time to produce the actual body of Jesus. If you wanted to pretend, or if you wanted to promote this idea that they were in the wrong tomb, then just show us the right tomb. We've had 2,000 years of opportunity to show us the right tomb. Nobody's gotten there yet. Wrong tomb theory seems wrong. A second theory of why the tomb is empty uh, is the stolen body theory. It's the right tomb, uh, but somebody got there first to steal it. Now, we're going to deal with this more next week because we're going to see the report of the guard in verses 11 to 15 about this particular narrative uh, about stealing the body. I only want to say the end of chapter 27 sets up for us, uh, if they really wanted to promote the body was stolen, they made a bad move by sending their own guards to steal it and, uh, to seal it and protect it, right? That makes the idea that the body is stolen even more far-fetched. The truth that the women are invited to see is the place where he lay. Look back at verse 6. The angel doesn't say, just take my word for it. He's not here. No, they're invited to come in. 
They're invited to literally see the place in that uh, small little room where his body lay. They're going to look around, make sure he wasn't on a bench on the opposite side of the room, make sure they're really in the right tomb, to check out all of the facts for themselves. And these two women now give us first-hand testimony that the tomb is empty. It's undisputed. He is not in that tomb. They are invited to come and see the truth. As they process this truth, as they depart, verse 8, quickly, we see they leave the tomb with fear and joy. You can imagine all the emotions that they're going through, right, in this moment. And then, lo and behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and said, greetings. This is about the most unimpressive word he could have said to them. He's basically saying in Greek, hello, right? Nothing powerful. Uh, Nothing sort of profound. There's Jesus. And he says hello to them. They come up and they take hold of his feet and they worship him. The second evidence in Scripture of the resurrection is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. This This is why the wrong tomb theory doesn't work, because he's alive. This is why the stolen body theory doesn't work, because Jesus is alive. But that hasn't stopped Anyone from coming up with other counter-arguments, hasn't it, to explain how in the world these women saw Jesus? Let me give you a couple of those theories. One theory you may have heard in church history is the swoon theory. Have you heard this? That Jesus, on the cross, because of all of the suffering, he swooned or he fainted. And he fainted on the cross and everybody thought he was dead. And so they buried him. And then somehow, two days after he fainted, he regained consciousness and rolled this big, massive stone out from the tomb that he was buried in. Part of the problems with this argument for the swoon theory is it assumes that the Roman soldiers didn't actually know how to kill someone. The Roman soldiers, who were experts at this very practice of crucifixion, somehow failed to know how to actually kill Jesus on the cross. It also fails to account for what happens after this day, right? Are we to assume that Jesus, who taught faithful obedience to all of God's law, who lived a moral and sinless life, then from this moment forward lied to everyone he met that he actually died and was raised from the dead? And, And then what happened when he actually died? Where is that body? Or did he just disappear after he pretended to ascend? Then he lived by himself in seclusion for the rest of his life? What's the point of that religion, right? The swoon theory doesn't make sense of the evidence in front of our eyes. Other people say a different explanation for how the women saw Jesus, and that is that they hallucinated him. They wanted to see him, and they had this vision of the one that they wanted to see in front of their eyes. Well, that's not very compelling because the verse tells us they touched him. Matthew says they touched his feet. You don't touch visions, right? You don't touch the thing that you're hallucinating. Matthew joins his testimony with other gospel authors who will also tell us of other people who touched Jesus, like like Thomas. 
and other people who saw them and crowds who saw him together. Mass amounts of people do not have the exact same hallucination. That's just not how it works. The hallucination theory doesn't work. The swoon theory doesn't work. The stolen body theory doesn't work. The wrong tomb theory doesn't work. What we have at the bedrock of the Christian faith are two undeniable truths. The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And we have trustworthy witnesses who bring us that message that we too would believe. I know you've heard this before. If Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were trying to make up a new religion, the initial witnesses that they would choose to observe the empty tomb would certainly not be women. Because at the time, a woman's testimony was not given much credit in popular conversation and especially not in court. So why would they choose culturally unsupported witnesses to be the very bedrock of their faith? They didn't make that choice. God made that choice. Because God chooses the things that are foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is lowly to shame the strong. Reminds me of a character in uh, my favorite, one of my favorite book series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and the, these children, they go into this magical world and they meet this lion, Aslan. Uh, and the second book, Prince Caspian. And they are, uh, they're back in this world of Narnia uh, and they're following somebody else. And then one of the children sees the lion, Aslan. At least she thinks she sees him, little Lucy. But the older kids, the, the smart kids, the kids who know better, say, there's no way you could see Aslan here. And they ignore her. And then she sees him again. And she tells her older siblings. And they ignore her again. And she sees him again. And they ignore her again. And then eventually Aslan reveals himself to the unbelieving children. What they thought was foolish at first is the very means by which God uses to shame the strong. These two women... Alone and sad, leave the tomb, having come to see the risen Lord. Now, why does this matter to us? Not every threat to Christianity comes from critics from the outside. Sometimes it comes from within. Sometimes it comes in a form of liberal Christianity that would argue it doesn't really matter if he is physically raised from the dead or not. As long as... He's living in our hearts. That's enough, right? One of these preachers asked the question, what would happen if we actually found the bones of Jesus? What would happen if there was an archaeological discovery and it was undisputed that this is where Jesus was buried and here are his <clears throat> remains? And here's how this preacher answers that. He says, even though Easter wouldn't be about the physical resurrection of Jesus, we would go on celebrating the example and testimony of this great man of God who lives in our hearts and who inspires us to be kind to others. Here's the payoff. Even if the tomb wasn't empty, our hearts would still be full. What does the Apostle Paul say? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
He means not to be raised again. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It matters. It matters whether that tomb is empty. It matters whether they really saw the living, resurrected Jesus. Our hope and faith depends upon the resurrection. You take it away and everything falls apart. Let me ask you this morning, let me invite you, just as the angel said to those two women, that you would come and see. You would come and see the facts of the matter. You would come and examine for your very self. You would come and, and read and study and think, maybe you could come up with a better theory than those that I have named. I don't think you will. But come and see. Come and investigate. Come and ask questions. I've got lots of books to give you. Because I'm going to tell you there's no other explanation of the facts of the matter than the words of the angel that he is risen. And if he is risen, and if you come and see and investigate, that there's no other answer to why the tomb is empty and why they saw Jesus, the answer is printed here in our text for what that means for us. It means we fall at his feet and worship. These women would have been raised in the Jewish tradition with the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish faith. They would have known the teaching that God is one. They would have known the teaching against idolatry and worshiping any human. And yet here they are doing what no self-respecting Jewish man or woman would do, and that is worshiping a person. Because they see with their very eyes, they come and see that he is God. And they have no choice but to worship him, the risen and living God. Once they see Jesus, they cannot do anything but worship him. And it's out of that worship that we are led to the second step that God calls all of his disciples to. We are called first to come and see, and then we are called second to go and tell. Go and tell. And again, the angel gives this call, go and tell, and then Jesus repeats it. Go and and tell. Look at each of those. Verse 7, the angel after the end of verse 6 telling the women to come and see, he says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So here is their command and it is simple. They have two facts that they need to go and tell. They need to tell that Jesus is alive and that he is going before them to meet them in Galilee. And the angel ensures that they know, that they testify to the truth that he really is alive. They've been given the evidence, and so they know and believe that Jesus is alive. And now they go and they tell. It's really a pretty easy task, isn't it? (laughs) Just go and tell people that he's alive. I wonder along the way if they complicate that like you and I do sometimes. Well, if I go tell that person, aren't they just going to ask me more detailed questions I don't have the answer to? Aren't they going to think I'm kind of a fool for believing a dead person has been alive? Maybe he didn't really mean tell them of the empty tomb. Maybe just tell them that he's loving and kind, right? There's something about telling of the resurrection of Jesus that is both incredibly easy 
Because it is the fact that we have been invited to come and see, but also is strangely difficult. Because in the eyes of the world, it can make us look like a fool. They are to go and tell that he has risen. They are secondly to go and tell that he is going before them to Galilee. He doesn't meet them in Jerusalem, where they all are. He particularly, they're both now going to travel back north to Galilee, where he's going to meet with them. Now, why Galilee? Well, some people think this is sort of the final rejection of Jerusalem. Sort of Jesus shaking his feet off from the place that rejected him. I think that's possible, but I think there's something sort of significant, not just about not Jerusalem, but about Galilee. Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles. It is not the place of power and esteem in their tradition. It is not the place where smart and wise and powerful and impressive people come from. No humble Galilee of the Gentiles will now be the launching place into the worldwide mission to and through those very same Gentiles. And it's, it's actually here that we, we see a third evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And that evidence is the origin of the Christian faith. What usually would have happened when there is an upstart Messiah from amongst the local people, the Roman leaders would end the messianic movement by killing the messiah right you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter that's how you end these types of religious religious fanatic movements so if that's how the romans deal with every other messianic movement how do we explain that that didn't happen here and the men who were cowards now become courageous for the faith the men who denied Jesus are now willing to die for him. Right? The men who hid now go forth as the heralds of the news of the resurrected Jesus. You cannot make sense of this worldwide religion that starts on a dead Savior. If the resurrection didn't happen, how in the world do you explain that we're here today singing about it 2,000 years later? The angel tells the women to go and tell, and then Jesus repeats that same teaching in verse 9. Jesus says to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. My brothers. I don't believe this is his biological brothers. I believe this is, these are his spiritual brothers. And they're going to see Jesus in Galilee. You see this cycle, this pattern is now going to repeat itself. These two women come see and go and tell. They're going to go to Galilee and they're going to come and see. In the end of the chapter, they're going to go and tell. This now becomes the pattern for discipleship. This now becomes the, the pattern for the Christian life, to come and see the resurrected Jesus and then to go and tell. But just pause with me for a moment and think about who Jesus calls to meet him at Galilee. The guys who were weak and frail and erring, the ones who left him, the ones who denied him, the ones who scattered, are the very people Jesus calls my brothers. J.C. Ryle points out the parallel here with the Genesis account of Joseph. Joseph, one of 12 brothers who was denied and sold and treated as dead by his older brothers. 
And then in God's providence later in life, they are brought back to him. And he is in a position to forgive them and to restore them for their sin. And they are weeping because of what they have done. And he calls them brothers. Jesus says Peter, who denied him, is his brother. Jesus says the rest of the disciples who fled are his brothers. I wonder if sometimes you have a hard time telling other people about the resurrection of Jesus, not because they're going to think you're a fool, but because you've already acted like a fool. You've already acted not like a Christian. That Those people at work that you want to tell about Christ, well, they know that you're actually pretty lazy at work. And you think, maybe I'm disqualified from speaking of Jesus. Or the neighbor that you want to share the love of Christ with and speak of the resurrection, well, they know you're kind of a gossip. And so you've sort of, now you have no ability to speak of Christ. Or those parents who you've lost your temper with every Thanksgiving, right, a meal of your life, <laughs> maybe they will think too low of you and you can't share the news of the resurrection with them. You see that Jesus restores sinners. He restores deniers. He restores cowards. He, restore, he restores failures such that we, failures, become the very mouthpiece of the gospel that he is risen and we have the joy of going and telling about him. Isn't that what characterizes these women? As they leave, they're afraid and they're filled with joy. What, what greater joy could they have than going and telling everybody that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore? They worship him and they leave for this joyful, not a burden. They're not annoyed that their day's plans were messed up because now they have to run this errand for Jesus and tell people he's alive, right? No, they are overjoyed. They get to tell people about Jesus. I've told you there's a pattern here. Let's just close thinking a moment about what this pattern looks like in our lives. The women come and see, and then they go and tell. Then the disciples are going to come and see in the Great Commission in two weeks, and they're going to go and tell. That's the same pattern for us. This is the pattern of our Christian life, isn't it? That we were once blind to the truth, we were once rebels against God's work in our heart and our lives. That we once maybe professed right things with our lips, but we did not believe them in our hearts, and we did not bear fruit in keeping with repentance in our lives. And that God has gotten hold of us. And he has called us and invited us and maybe forced us to come and see. To come and see the empty tune. To taste and see that the Lord is good. And now our lives are characterized by those words to go and tell. Children, why do you think mom and dad bring you to church and have you listen to long sermons like this one? <laughs> because they want you to come and see Jesus. Why do they tell you to turn your show off at night and read the Bible with you and pray with you before bed? Because they want you to come and see Jesus. Why do they make breakfast go a little bit longer to read some pages of Bible and sing some hymns uh, from a tone-deaf mouth, right? <laughs> because they want you to come and see Jesus. This is the pattern of our lives. It's, it's even the pattern of our week. Right? The, the week begins by coming and seeing Jesus with these women, and then it, it is marked as they go forth Monday to Saturday telling about who he is. 
telling about what he's done. This is how we began our week. On Resurrection Sunday, we come and we see and we sing and we taste and we enjoy and we worship such that we now go forth with the joy of the witnesses to go and tell. God has called you to gather today and you leave after the benediction and you will scatter throughout this city. You will scatter throughout this county and some of you even beyond. And you will go and tell the joy of your resurrected Savior. This is the greatest telephone game in the history of mankind. And we're next. We've heard the good news. We have seen that he is alive. And now we go and tell. There are no greater facts in all of history. And there is no greater purpose in your life than to come and see that he's not here. And to go and tell that he is alive. Let's pray. Our Lord, we praise you and we rejoice that your son is risen from the dead. That the grave could not keep him down. Vain the tomb, vain the watch, vain the seal. None of it could keep him in that tomb. Lord, I pray today that there are some of us who will deal with the facts this very hour that you will strike us with the very truth of your word, that this bedrock truth would be a thorn in our side and a pebble in our shoe, and we cannot go forward until we deal with the resurrection evidence. And I pray, Lord, as we deal with it, that your spirit would open our eyes to see and you would lead us to worship and to joyful telling, and you would mark our lives as men and women who children who come and see and who go and tell. Unto your ends and unto your glory we pray in Jesus' name.